I'm just going to give our front lines team a second to finish with the offering because they are momentarily going to have Bibles to hand out. We believe in the Bible here. We believe that it's God's word for us, and it's important for you to follow along in your Bible when we read together. Um, that just uh, adds one extra sense that you're taking it in. Um, so not only are you hearing it, you're seeing it, and that helps you absorb the truth of it a little more. So we believe that it's important for you to be reading it with us. Um, so if, if you have your Bible with you already, or if you have a Bible app that you like to use, you can flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. And if you're thinking, oh no, I left mine at home, or you don't even own one, that's fine. Um, our Frontlines team is coming forward, and you can just give them a little wave. They'll pass those out to you. Um, you're welcome to borrow this for the morning and then hand it in again at the end of the, our gathering, or you can just keep it if you want one. So um, feel free to take that. Um, all right, so we're turning to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to start right at verse 1. So follow along with me as we read. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment of discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." This is the word of the Lord. That's a heavy ending, eh? It's kind of hard. I don't know about you. Maybe it's hard to say praise be to God at the end of that. But we do. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Cameron Ogilvy. I'm a, I'm a non-elderly elder in this community. And uh, 
So it's my, it's my pleasure to share with you this morning. Uh, if you haven't been with us, Hebrews, the book that we're reading, it's a letter, and uh, it's got an unknown author. The author's anonymous. It's written, it's, its audience is a group of Hebrews, okay? Um, these are Jewish followers of Jesus who are being persecuted and they're also new followers of Jesus, okay? Uh, the author at some points in time refers to them as infants in Christ or children in the faith. And as with raising any kid, you come across the challenging question of, well, how, how am I going to train them up? How am I going to raise them to make wise decisions? And in the context of this, uh, this chapter, the question is, how, how can I teach these children to run well and to run with endurance? So this, this whole question of how you train a child to run well, it certainly wasn't foreign to my parents. Uh, and they're here this morning to, just, to, just to assure you of that. One time my dad was driving home from work. He's listening to 570 News. I don't know if you, any of you know this name. Uh, there's uh, a radio voice named Dr. Laura. And Dr. Laura was on the, and she would talk about, you know, family dynamics and uh, relationships and so how you, how you have healthy relationships and stuff. And so she was talking about how do you help your kids make wise decisions? And uh, so she had five, four questions, four questions. And, uh, and they were this, you teach your kid to ask, is this thing that I'm about to do, is it safe? Number one, is it, is it legal? Is it moral? And does it make sense? Okay, say it with me. Is it safe? Is it legal? Is it moral? And does it make sense? Well, my dad just thought this was, this was it. This is the silver bullet. Cam's going to learn to make wise decisions. And so he comes home and he sits down my six-year-old self. And regardless of whether or not these are age-appropriate questions for a six-year-old, <laughs> he taught them to me. And I was quick, and I had them memorized. I had four questions. Okay, and, I, and like a day or so goes by, and mom's, mom's downstairs. And uh, I'm playing with my three-year-old sister upstairs, and mom hears the infamous bang. <laughs> and so she, uh, she comes upstairs, and this is the scene. Cameron is standing on the bed, and three-year-old Ashley is lying on the floor in a pool of tears. And mom asks me, Cameron, what happened? And I looked at mom and I said, well, mom, I, I asked myself the four questions. Is it safe? Is it legal? Is it moral? And does it make sense? And then I pushed her. <laughs> and so the moral of the story is that if we don't learn to properly apply these lessons that we are taught, uh, it can have disastrous consequences. So would you just take a moment with me, and we're just going to pray this morning, give this to God. And so God, we, we come to you, and we, wanna, we want to put into practice these truths that you want to share with us this morning, not, not to earn your attention or to, to get a hold of your love, but because you have loved us. You have given us your attention, and you've loved us through Jesus, and we want to honor you with these lives that you've given us. Let it be so, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, would you read with me? Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. Okay, first of all, if you haven't been with us, who is this cloud of witnesses? These are the heroes of the Christian faith. They come from chapter 11. The author's already gone through it. These are the patriarchs. They're the prophets, the priests, and the kings. What were the cloud of witnesses, witnesses to? And I think you can summarize that as they were witnesses to a life of faith. And you get that from the beginning of chapter 11. What is faith? Well, faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. What was their faith? What was the faith of the cloud of witnesses? And I think it's this. That it was better to suffer for doing what was right than to live a life that opposed God's will. Or that the eternal rewards of obedience and faithfulness to God were worth far more than the temporary relief that the world had to offer. Or as he lays out the image in this passage, which we're now going to focus on, he paints this picture of a runner running the race of life, believing this, that it's better to endure in doing right than to surrender to sin. It's better to endure in doing right than to surrender to sin. Now, why do we need witnesses for this? Like, it's written in the Bible. It's true. Yeah, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Okay, it, it may be true, but we may not always know that it's true. So, we, we all engage with witnesses. You look for testimonies before you engage with a professional. Okay, uh, we read product reviews before you make a purchase. Uh, students will go and check out Rate My Prof before they pick a course with that uh, annoying professor to avoid them. Or who has food apps on their phones? Okay, Do you, like Yelp or Urban Spoon. And how many of you would go to a restaurant that had two stars? Like nobody, it's a bad witness. And so just like this, just like the witnesses we engage with in everyday life, the witnesses of chapter 11 do not prove that this statement is true, that it's better to endure in doing right than to surrender to sin. They don't prove that it's true, but they're there to increase our confidence and our conviction, our faith that it's true. And so now, though the author's given the whole previous chapter to exploring this cloud of witnesses, he's about to turn to his favorite theme. He's already gone over this throughout the rest of the book. Would you consider Jesus? So in chapter 1, he's gone through the point that Jesus is greater than the angels. In chapter 3, Jesus is greater than Moses. In chapter 5, he's greater than Aaron, the high priest. In chapter 7, he's greater than Melchizedek. And now, after looking at all these witnesses, would you once again please consider Jesus? He's the central witness. He takes center stage. He is meant to be the anchor of our faith. And he sums this up in verse 2 by making this statement, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What does that mean, founder and perfecter? Think about founder, this idea for a second. Able. Abel was one of the witnesses that's referred to in chapter 11. Abel is 
a witness to faith, a witness that it's better to endure in doing right than to surrender to sin. And he's a witness to this because he offered an acceptable sacrifice to God, and it was a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. But who was it who offered themselves up as a perfect sacrifice to God? Would you consider Jesus? Or, or think about Abraham. He was a witness to a life of faith. He left his homeland for the place that God would show to him where God's people, the Israelites, were supposed to dwell. But who was it who left their home in the heavens to come and make a home with us so that we could become his family and live with him forever? Would you consider Jesus? Or think about Moses. Moses was a witness to a life of faith. It's better to endure in doing right than to surrender to sin. He traded away his inheritance in Pharaoh's household so that he could lead the Israelites, the Jews, out of slavery. But who was it who traded his inheritance in heaven to come and lead us out of slavery and loose our shackles? Would you consider Jesus? Jesus is the founder of this faith that it's better to endure in doing right than to surrender to sin because, in verse 2, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the founder of this faith, and he's also the perfecter of this faith, and I think this comes up in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint. Considering Jesus' witness is meant to have an impact on our endurance so that in order to... His example is meant to have an effect on our lives. And so this is really important. If, if we look no different after deciding to follow Jesus, we probably haven't considered him very seriously because he's meant to change everything. Consider him so that. And this is where Christianity stands out far among the pack of other world religions because there's no other religion that claims that the life of one man, one man ought to make all the difference in your life and mine. And so if, if you're with us today and you're not bought in on this whole Christianity thing, just as a brief aside, I encourage you, if you've got the time this afternoon, go home. There's a video uh, by Ravi Zacharias called Jesus Among Other Gods. It's an amazing thing, uh, amazing talk that he gives about this idea of Jesus changes everything and it stands out from other faiths. So, Back to this whole idea, consider Jesus so that, and maybe you're wondering, what does it look like to consider Jesus? So here, here are some thoughts that I've been able to come up with over the past week, and I think it starts with this. Number one, consider Jesus in everything. Consider Jesus in everything. And if we're going to consider Jesus in everything, we need to know how Jesus changes everything. We need to know his good news. So we, we've been going through and promoting this resource, gospel fluency. We need to know and be fluent in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus and how it speaks into the everyday stuff of life. So consider Jesus in everything. Here, here are some other five questions that this, the same group who published this, this book, they give these five questions of how you can apply the truths of Jesus to everyday stuff in life. Ask yourselves these. Who is God? What has he done? Who are we? 
What do we do and how do we do it? Who is God? What has he done? Who are we? What do we do and how do we do it? So to give you an example, Friday morning, I handed in an assignment. I came to that at the end of that assignment and I reached like this incredible emotional low. I felt bad. Uh, I, I'd, I'd been reading all these articles, very polished, published articles, and I handed in my assignment and went, I'm never going to be able to be that. I, I don't have what it takes. I don't feel very, I don't feel very refined, and all these articles are refined, and, and I don't feel very put together. And I, I, I came to this low spot, and I came to God in that moment. And so I, I, before God, I asked myself these questions. Well, who is God? God is, God is the creator. He puts things together. What has he done? He gave up his life. He suffered so that broken things would be made whole again. Who am I? I'm his new creation. I'm salvaged from the dumpster of life through his sacrifice. I am repurposed material. And so what do I do? I offer myself to the great restorer. I dedicate my life and my body to his work in me, through me, as he puts me back together again. And so how do I do it? I do it regularly. I do it ceaselessly. Take my life and let it be consecrated to thee. Consider Jesus in everything. Yeah, because that... That lasted for about two hours, and then I was in the low again. So here's the second point. Consider Jesus regularly. Consider Jesus regularly. What rhythms do you have in your life that are causing you to remember and consider Jesus in everything over and over and over again? So for myself, just as an example, I've taken an extra half hour on my lunch break where I, f I finish lunch, I shut my phone off, I set a timer on, I sit down with my journal, a Bible, and some prayer requests that I have from other people, and I just I, I refocus my day. What rhythms do you have in your life that are causing you to re-remember how Jesus changes everything? Because we need to consider him regularly. And here's the third point that I would, I would suggest, is we need to consider him as a community. This is not a race that we run alone. And so who, who are you putting yourself around so that you can receive encouragement when your endurance is tested? The way that we do this as Church of the City is we gather on Sundays and then we scatter into missional communities throughout the week. Missional communities are families of missionary disciples, and we're here to encourage each other in how Jesus changes everything in our lives and how that ought to affect every area of your life. So maybe you need to come and speak to Spencer. Where'd Spencer go? Spencer Adams is here somewhere. Here's our pastor of missional living. Oh, baby threw up. He's, he's doing family stuff. Good. Okay. So, come up here and we'll, we'll connect you with the missional community afterwards if you're interested in getting plugged in more and, and being around people who are in, going to encourage you to consider Jesus in everything regularly and consider Jesus as a community. So, verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And let's move on to verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Uh, this is getting heavy, and I found myself like trying to water this down as I came. It's like, like Jesus, consider Jesus who endured from sin or such. Jesus was enduring through persecution. 
okay? Uh, the, the witnesses of chapter 11, they were enduring through persecution. The, the audience of this book, the Hebrews, they were enduring through persecution. I'm not being persecuted. Does this really apply to me? This, this is the problem I'm having. He doesn't narrow it down to persecution. He says sin. In your struggle against sin, you haven't yet resisted the point of shame. So, why does he not narrow this down and restrict this just to the topic of persecution? Why is this a sin issue that we need endurance for? And I think the point is that Jesus, when he invited us to follow him, he wasn't just looking for us to endure in doing right. In our public lives, when the stakes were highest, when we were called upon to declare our allegiance to Jesus, he wasn't just looking for that. He was looking for our private lives as well. He wants to change everything. Consider him in everything, not just when you're called on publicly. And so we're going to return to this idea in a little bit, but for now, let's keep moving on. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises, or some translations say scourges, every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. I'm going to pause there. It is for discipline that you have to endure. I think there's an interesting idea in here. We're to think of discipline, or rather, we're to think of endurance as an act of God's discipline in our life. So the, the pain and the, the inner conflict and the struggle that we feel when we push through, when we endure in doing right, when you when you pour out the bottle, when you throw away the next pack of cigarettes, when you, uh, when you shut off the computer, when you hold your tongue, or when you speak the truth even when it's inconvenient for you, whatever the, the struggle is that you're experiencing in those moments, that's God's discipline in our lives. God disciplines us through our endurance. Now, in, in Canada, we don't think too well of the idea of discipline, like discipline's primitive, it's old-fashioned, it's traditional, it's negative, it's to be avoided, like let the children figure out their lives for themselves. And the Bible does not take this perspective on discipline, uh, I'm sad to say. So he's already quoted from Proverbs 3.12, the Lord, the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. This isn't an isolated idea in Proverbs either. In Proverbs 13.24, get this, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, I'm, I'm not advocating that we start beating our children with rods or anything, but there's an important question to be asked is why does God discipline us? Look down at verse 10 with me. For they, speaking of earthly parents, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. He disciplines us for our good. Friends, I think the reason why we in Canada have such a, an issue with discipline is not because there's anything inherently wrong with discipline itself, but because of the 
terrible and perverted and twisted intentions that people have that motivate their discipline. God disciplines us in love. He disciplines us for our good. He disciplines us not not to push us down, but to raise us up, to be everything that he's created us to be. He disciplines us in love, and he disciplines us in relationship. This is beautiful. Look back at verse 7 with me. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God doesn't discipline us because we don't belong to him, and he's trying to get us fixed up right so that we can belong to him. No, he disciplines us because we do, through Jesus, we do belong to him. When Jesus died as a substitute for us in our place, we became a part of God's family. God got invested in our welfare. He got his hands dirty, and he cares about the return that he's going to get. And so God disciplines us. He deposits in us his Holy Spirit, so that he would receive a return. Look at, look at back at verse 10. I'm jumping around a little bit, but this is cool. Okay, so verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Sharing is relationship. It's mutual exchange. It's participation. And I think the idea that's really interesting here is holiness is the currency. Okay, God is holy, and he desires that we would be holy. He doesn't just call us to do this on our own. So he deposits in us his Holy Spirit so that he'd receive a return on the investment that he's made. And this is important to get is that God, we do not bring ourselves to God. We don't save ourselves by doing good works. Those don't save us. Jesus saves us. His good work is what saves us. But that doesn't mean that God isn't looking for a good return on the investment that he has made in our lives through Jesus. Or in, to put it in the words of Thomas Watson, I love this quote, sin robs God of his glory, Christ of what he has purchased, and our souls of their happiness. Sin robs God of his glory, Christ of what he has purchased, and our souls of their happiness. So, how do we, how do we avoid sin and, and endure in doing right and so share in a rich relationship with our Father. And I think that's where this closing section leads us to, is he's going to give us some advice on this. And I think it can almost be framed in uh, why, why do followers of Jesus fall into sin? And I think there's some hints here. So look down at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. Lift your drooping hands. Number one reason why followers of Jesus fall into sin is we're tired or we're lazy or we're sluggish. We're getting about like 25 minutes in now, so you need to put your hands up with me. Lift your drooping hands. Don't worry, it'll be over soon. Good, good. Okay, so friends, we ought never to say, I can't endure. I can't endure in doing right. 
If that, if those words slip from our lips, our eyes have slipped from the prize. We're no longer considering Jesus. Consider him so that considering Jesus is meant to have an effect on our lives. He's meant to change everything. It's not about what you and I can do on our own. It's about what Christ and what his Holy Spirit wants to do through us. These empower our endurance. We need to get over ourselves, okay? Turn, turn to your neighbor and in a spirit of gentleness, say to them, would you please get over yourself, okay? <laughs> Number one reason why followers of Jesus fall into sin, lift your drooping hands, you're getting tired, and you need to call on the Spirit and call on Christ to empower your endurance. Number two reason, as we go on in that verse, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Second reason why followers of Jesus fall into sin, there's a lack of training or a lack of exercise. Don't go to the rack and try and curl 80s. Like, start small, folks. And this is, why it's, this is why it's so important that we have to endure through the small things, not just in our public lives when the stakes are high. We gotta, we gotta grow. So look at Jesus. Consider Jesus' example. Jesus didn't die on the cross when he was 12. He was in his father's house when he was 12. Jesus didn't die on the cross when he began his ministry of preaching and teaching and working miracles. He was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness then. Was he going to cave to the temptations of power and pleasure? There was a lifetime of faithful living, enduring and doing right, that preceded this great act of endurance. So if you, like me, are not being regularly asked to confess your allegiance to Jesus, I encourage you, don't wait till the moment comes. There's a chorus from a song that I knew growing up, and it goes like this. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white turn to gray and thoughts invade, choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. We must not dilute the value of enduring through the small things. Number three reason why followers of Jesus fall into sin. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. We're aimless, friends. We don't know where we're running to. We don't have a target. We, we don't know where the finish line is. And so the author's about to line us up for two targets. And I think all the race imagery that he's been using up to this point in time comes in real handy right about now. So we started out, consider the cloud of witnesses. These are the people who fill the stadium. They're looking at you and I, the runners. Consider the cloud of witnesses. Looking to Jesus, consider him our forerunner, okay? The, our pace setter, the one who's gone before us, striving against sin. That's our competitor, our opponent. And now running to, striving for peace with everyone. Verse 14, 
and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Two targets, peace and holiness. Strive for these. I've said holiness a couple of times, or holy. Like, what does that mean? What's that word mean? And I think there's a hint in this passage. For the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Friends, if you're wondering what holiness is, really simply, if you're holy, people will see Jesus in you. If you're not holy, people won't see Jesus in you. That's, that's the whole point of holiness, is wholeness, completeness, the fullness of God. In f- the fullness of God in him was pleased to dwell. So, this is where things all come full circle, is by striving for peace and for holiness. What we're, what we're simply striving for is, once again, consider Jesus. Let him affect and change everything in your life. Become like him. Strive for Jesus. Jesus saw past socioeconomic and, uh, and all the racial and cultural boundaries and the labels that people put on each other, and he saw the hurting and broken people behind them, and he stro- strove for peace with these people, to bring them peace. So we ought to do the same. Jesus also was ready to flip tables when it came to it because he cared about truth and he cared about holiness, and we need to be ready to do the same. And so... Here, strive for Jesus, strive for peace with all people, and strive for holiness. And now I think we get the lines for our lane, okay? Where, how are we running? This is our destination. How do we know when we we need to course correct, okay? So here are the lines for our lane. Make straight paths for your feet. Here it comes. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by many become defiled. So line number one, when we know that we're no longer pursuing peace, is when bitterness creeps up into our life or when people aren't receiving the grace of God from us. We need to course correct. Here's the other line. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy. So we're no longer striving for holiness anymore. If there's sexual immorality in our lives or if there's unholiness in our lives and people aren't able to see Jesus' example through us. And then he links this to an example through Esau. And for those of you who don't know the story of Esau, well, Esau has a brother and his name's Jacob and their father, Isaac, and uh, Esau and Jacob, uh, they're, they're kind of twins. Esau was born first, then Jacob, and Esau was always a man of the field, a hunter, and one day he was out hunting, and he came back in from hunting, and he was hungry, desperately hungry. Jacob was cooking something. Jacob wasn't cooking for Esau. It was a lentil stew, if you're interested in lentils. Um, Esau was so hungry, and he just, he just wanted some food, But he didn't have anything to trade for it except his inheritance, his birthright, what what was rightfully his, the inheritance of his father for him. And the, the the scriptures say that he valued it so little, he actually despised the inheritance he had from his father. And so in the heat of the moment, he gives up his inheritance to have a meal. So it's the application for us. 
we must not forfeit our endurance for a quick fix. We must not forfeit our endurance for a quick fix. Consider Jesus who endured so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Jesus who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And when he rose to that throne, he promised us an inheritance in his family. Let's not trade that away for a quick fix. And friends, I've, I've prayed all week about how this ends, and I honestly don't know how this message ends today, and so maybe it just ends with a question of what's going to come of this in our lives? Will we run well? Will we endure? Will we lift our drooping hands? Will we strengthen our weak knees? Will we make straight paths for our feet? Will we consider Jesus in everything, consider him regularly, and consider him as a community? I pray that it would be so. So why don't we, uh, we'll end and we'll sing some songs again. I encourage you, if, if anything from this morning is, is hitting you and you know there needs to be change that takes place in your life today, there will be people up the front here who are ready and willing and eager to pray with you. So I encourage you, if, if, if you can be so bold, to come and take the step of change and come and, come and receive prayer and let it start today. So would you pray with me as we close? Father God, as we open today, we, we don't long to put these truths into practice so that we can become a part of your family, but because through Christ you have welcomed us into your family. We are yours we belong to you, we are your children, and because we are your children, you have the greatest hopes for us, the greatest longings for us that we would be everything that you created us to be. So God, would you work that out in us today and in the days to come? Would you empower us by the example of Christ, by your Holy Spirit working in us so that we would return to you a holy life as you are holy. Let it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.